everyone and welcome to the Scots Way podcast and this is the first of three best of 2017 podcasts um, that we're going to do. The first one is going to be on film and then there'll be one on the best music of the year and then also one on the best um, books of the year. But I can't do this alone so I'm joined again by um, Chris Wall. Hello Chris. Hello and Wesley Shearer. How are you doing, Wesley? I'm great, Ali. Thanks for having me back again. Oh, always a pleasure. I can't believe it's been 12 years. I know that's an no. honest thing to say, but yeah, 12 <laughs> months and we've hopefully fitted a lot into that. And also Ian, good to see you. Hello. <laughs> um, so, films of the year, I'm going to kick off, since it's Scottish, we're here with a couple of um, Scottish films. It was a great year for Scottish film, um, necessarily, but there's two... Um, I want to mention um, first off is T2 Trainspotting um, I don't know and I know Chris you haven't seen I this I still haven't seen it yeah, I'm like, hoping you may have seen this I have seen this yeah. excellent so what did you think Wesley of, of Trainspotting T2 I absolutely loved it yeah I was pretty apprehensive getting to it I think which is quite natural to be honest um, but I mean it may have been aided by the fact that it was part of a staff night out and we went to the Grosvenor and had a couple of bottles of wine <laughs> between each row, which did definitely help help the enjoyment of the film. But no, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I exactly the same feelings. I was concerned that how could it possibly kind of live up to even just the hype of the first film, if if that makes sense, because the reputation of that film almost became bigger than the film, if you know what I mean. Going back, I don't know, because have you watched the first one for not a while? Not in a long time. Not in a long... No, it's probably not since I was a teenager, actually. Yeah. But it's one of those films that kind of looms large over, I think, certainly kind of formative years of people who have been teenagers since the mid-90s or in their 20s or whatever. It's one of these kind of, like, almost kind of youth culture kind of landmarks or whatever. You know, it's one that you see on, like, kind of uni posters and stuff like this, you know, and, like, you know... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it became not just... Became part of the whole uh, cool Britannia feel and all of that stuff. So I was concerned about it. Um, I just think they got it absolutely spot on from the opening scenes with uh, Renton on the treadmill and and the, the the way that they intercut it with pictures from the past and from pre- the previous film and you know I, I mean I think. I don't suppose I ever considered Danny Boyle as being a great filmmaker, but he certainly can make great films. That's funny you should say that. I'm exactly the same. It's it's every time a Danny Boyle film comes around, I'm, I'm always a bit sniffy of it, and I'm not really sure why. But you can't believe really in I, I suppose his filmmaking talents. But I think T two can be really summed up in how successful it was at achieving what it was supposed to achieve yeah, by the fact that that sole scene where he kind of rekindles the choose life speech. I think before it, like, what, what are they going to do here? I mean, they can't do this. I think it showed it slightly in the trailer, and I was like, oh, oh no, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be a rehash. It's going to be awful. And and even when he, I got to that scene and he opened his mouth, and I'm like, oh, jeez, oh, here we go. Absolutely nailed it. It yeah. was, it was brilliant. It really was from start to end. And I've also probably the hardest I've laughed at any scene was the, the pin number scene. Yeah. It was just. Yeah, the scene yeah. Uh, where they they steal all the, the credit cards, which of course is an original scene, it's not yeah, in yeah. any of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as well, having that, now whether it was by design or just it was the way things worked out, but to have the characters come back 
20 years older and actually 20 years older, you know, no needing to age them or do anything like that. They all looked like you would imagine their characters would look, yeah. you know, abs- even, you know, a Hollywood film star like Ewan McGregor, you could see life etched on his face. Kind of, the hard times are there. And I thought that was uh, fantastic. It was so difficult, so difficult to do to get after what had happened to them get them back together and make it realistic that, you know, there was love and there was hate and there was, uh, you know, disappointment and all the things that would have happened. Um, yeah, it was one of my favourite films of the year. Uh, it, was, it was terrific. Um, another film I'd like to talk about, um, not strictly a Scottish film, I suppose, but made by Scottish director, um, is Daphne. I don't know if you, uh, either of you saw Daphne. Saw that film, yeah. Yeah, um, Daphne, uh, I will, hands up here, is made by a good friend of mine, um, Peter Mackey Burns, um, and it was his debut feature. Um, I mean, Peter's had success doing short films in the past, on the Golden Bear of Berlin with milk and things like that, um, and has been trying to get this film made for, for a long time, and finally it came out, and... I mean, I think we'll all know when someone you know makes something you're kind of holding your breath that it's going to be good. And I just think he, he kind of absolutely got it spot on. It was fantastic. Great. It's about um, a young woman, not, not as young as she used to be, not maybe as young as she pretends to be in London and um, just trying to deal with single life in a big city where it's increasingly difficult to live and pay your way doesn't sound like it's a particularly exciting film, but it really gets inside the head. It's all about her. It's all about her character, really. Um, did you enjoy it after me saying I enjoyed it? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. It took, me a, it took me a while. It sat with me for a while, actually, after the film was finished. I was really, really excited to see it. Um, and we, my girlfriend and I both watched it. Um, I don't think we could find it... I don't think we could find it on the cinema release. I think it was the GFT, and I don't, yeah, think, it was. Uh, I don't think we got along to see it. So we just... We just uh, Watched it on cousin at home, and it was um, it was absolutely gorgeous. It was beautifully shot, mm. so well acted. I wasn't entirely sure how the how the plot sort of moved the film on. Well, the lack of plot, which I quite like actually in, in films, especially films like that, when it's trying to tell that sort of story about it. exactly as what you say, a woman who sees herself as younger but isn't quite as young as she sees sees herself to be, um, and it kind of let it kind of left me feeling a little bit cold at the end of it, mm-hmm. um, but. It actually sat with me for a couple of days, and the more I, the more I realised that actually it's, I feel like it's making me feel a bit cold. It was never going to have a conventional of, happy ending, of course, you yeah. know. Um, I, I, I think it would have been weird if it if it had. Some of my favourite scenes were the, the sort of subtleties between herself and the um, the manager of the restaurant she worked in. Is it the Irish actor? I yeah. think, and um, even when they're sitting down on the on the steps at the back of the kitchen, and it was just such honesty and such realism in the film that really kind of hammered home how how important everybody's kind of sense of life is, if you know what I mean, because this is a, this is a woman who understandably probably comes from a privileged background. Yeah. Um, she's working away from London, you kind of, sometimes you find it hard in that kind of environment to really feel empathy for a character when they are working in London and they're living in a nice wee flat on their own and you're kind of like, that's not really, most folk, most folk can't, really, yes. can't really experience that kind of life. Um, but the way it sort of kind of revealed each layer slowly until the very very last scene where you're like or the very last couple of scenes actually the final act where you actually think do you know what I'm totally on board with 
with this woman and, yeah. and kind of her own personal struggles and her own inner. inner I completely, it's a difficult character to like, and I think that's a deliberate choice, yeah. you know, you know that. Oh, I mean, she has a difficult character to like in the film, so therefore, as an yeah. audience, mm-hmm. like, I'm not quite sure if I'm on board with this. But yeah, I think by the end, you are hopefully on. on Outside, or at least kind of understand why she is yeah. as she is, and that's that's testament to the film, I think. Because if they opened it up straight away to kind of reveal why she was the way she was, it wouldn't have worked quite that same way. And I think that's the kind of ambition of the of, of the director, I suppose, is to in the writing is to get get the viewer on board eventually, but to make you question all of these things about that type of not make it easy for you, yeah, exactly. absolutely. You know, I think actually it's a film you'd enjoy because. There's lots of scenes in restaurants. She works in a restaurant, and they absolutely, for anyone who's worked in a restaurant, ring um, very close to home, I think. Yeah, after listening to um, Peter talking about it, as well, you and Peter talking yeah. about it on the Yeah, we did a podcast episode, with him, that's right. Um, I really thought, uh, I need to go and see that one. Still haven't, but yeah, it does. It's it wasn't easy to find. I mean, but it is on Curves and On Demand. I think you can still kind of pick that up. I need to look it up. Um... And the next couple of films I'm going to talk about um, were at the Glasgow Film Festival. So since I've been talking here and Chris hasn't said anything yet, Chris, how was your Glasgow Film Festival this year? Uh, busy. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, you was yeah. busy this year. Right? Yeah, I think um, I did 15 films at the actual festival, but it ended up at 20 films over the span of it, just from stuff being on general release as well, because that was the week that like Moonlight was out that week and John Wick 2 was out that week. Oh, the big films. 20th Century Women, yeah. So uh, a lot of them all came out like over the span of the festival. But yeah, I think, um, I think my final tally of actual festival films was 15 if, if I remember correctly which as usual when I do the festival was kind of older stuff like I quite seen some of the things that they unearthed kind of archival stuff maybe stuff hasn't been seen for a long time it's had the restoration stuff has been shown from like a 35mm print or something as you might not get a chance to see usually so in terms of actually seeing new stuff I didn't really see um, that much new a lot of it was new to me um, I saw a Portuguese film called The Ornithologist which is really good kind of shades of like Louis Bunnell and stuff like that and that kind of um, kind of satirical kind of damaged by Catholicism <laughs> you know kind of things about um, well an ornithologist as the title suggests who goes on a kind of scouting mission in the uh, woods and um, it becomes a kind of quite increasingly surreal um, like series of encounters mm-hmm. um, based on I can't remember is it Possibly St Anthony of Padua off the top of my head is based oh, on the life of yeah. it's, it's like a saint's life done in this kind of like quite sacrilegious like homoerotic like kind of as I say very like probably if you know the actual like story of the saint and are believe in any of it probably massively offensive but uh, it's, it's really uh, yeah it's worth seeing it's worth if you're into like I'm trying to think of a comparable film maybe like if you saw Mother this year and liked it, the Darren Aronofsky film or something, which again kind of flirts with Bunnell and the kind of religious mm-hmm. overtones and stuff like that, is it may make for a kind of interesting companion piece for that. And um, there's elements of like folk horror in it as well, bits of like kind of wicker managed oh, stuff cool. come into play in it. Um, but yeah, so that was that was probably the best like new film that I saw at the festival this year. But there were a couple of really cool discoveries they showed um, as part of the. Um, Matchbox Cine Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, they showed uh, Crime Wave, which is a Canadian comedy from the mid eighties. Yeah, I remember um, that. Which uh, I think shares a name with a film Cone Brothers scripted and nice. Sam Raimi directed. Well, but, maybe that's uh, the one I'm thinking of. But this one's a kind of really unique, kind of very like dark comedy. 
um, about a guy who gets released from prison and start, moves into like the spare room of a family in the suburbs and it's all kind of candy cord so it's this kind of it predates um, Tim Burton uh, but it's got that kind of look of like the suburbs of Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and that kind of stuff you know that kind of candy coloured kind of influenced by the 50s suburban idyll just kind of sh- not shattered but very much undercut by that kind of very dark creeping you know sense of kind of menace or whatever if they've seen it probably a big influence on Burton probably a big influence on Wes Anderson and like a real discovery and they had the director there as well John Pace who stars in it and, and directed it too um, Canadian crime wave crime wave yeah is what it's called and it's uh, I think 1985 possibly Canadian it's probably quite hard to track down but uh, if you can find it I think there's like a new restoration kicking about it's maybe like a crowdfunding thing or whatever. you might be able to pick up a DVD or something like that but uh, yeah definitely worth worth keeping an eye out for other than that at the festival I'm trying to cast my mind back now to what I actually saw there, there was a bunch of Kurosawa stuff always, yeah, always a treat yeah. to see that in the big screen see Seven Samurai and Yojimbo and everything and uh, God, I saw King of Jazz which is a very early musical very early like, talking like maybe 1930 wow. <laughs> kind of Hollywood musical um, Agnes Varda's uh, One Sings the Other Doesn't which always again Varda going through a kind of wave sort of thing online there it is just that she's kind of reaching Werner Herzog levels of memification on like on Twitter just now she's like film Twitter's granny or something <laughs> just everybody <laughs> like she's just do, like, do, doing adorable things here's another cute picture of Agnes Varda doing whatever um, so yeah it's good to actually be reminded of you know the talent behind that that's kind of earned her that position yeah, and stuff because yeah. their films are kind of aside from something like Cleo from 5 to 7 they're maybe a little kind of underseen generally so it's, it was nice to be actually be able to get a chance to uh, to see it with an audience um, so yeah it was a busy busy festival this year did you get the Glasgow Film Festival at all this year can you imagine a while ago I suppose I don't think I did I'm just thinking back as Chris was talking all about that and it's every year I aim to tick so many off the list and every year I, I fail to buy a ticket <laughs> was um, I think I've seen I'm Not Your Negro was that at the film oh festival? that was at the film festival that, yeah because yeah, I was talking to you about it yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to go along and, and Chris was going along and I never ended up getting tickets so I ended up watching it later in the year but that's just my usual film festival is buy leave tickets for films I want to see until it's too late and then don't get lost to the because exactly as Chris said there was other big releases out that month yeah. that week that I kind of went to see instead but unfortunately not I'm just going to have to lock up the tickets early next year I think yeah. did you see Lost in France? I did see Lost in France. So that was on it. Yeah, I didn't see it at the festival. I rented it after the fact. Um, Which is the Chemical Underground film. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. filmed it 20 years Yeah, 98, ago? I think. Yeah, so coming up 20 years ago, um, a tour bus, uh, not even a tour bus, just a bus uh, full of uh, Mogwai. Some of our favourite musicians. Yeah, the Delgados, R.M. Hubbard. And uh, he was in a band with Alex Kapranos at the time. I believe Hubbard was in a band with Alex Kapranos because they go back together and um, yeah they they take the now aged musicians some of them not all not, I think it's like who's it it's like um, Emma Pollock Emma and it, yeah. Stuart Henderson yeah, I think yeah. go back and uh, Hubbard and Kapranos and uh, Stuart Braithwaite yeah they actually take them back, back yeah, but it's, so it's not every member of every band they, I don't think they have either of Arab Strap um but they go back on the bus and they go back to they all played in the late nineties played in this little club in the like a small town in France, and so it's them trying to like retrace their steps and go and they do some of their own songs they do some collaborations and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it probably only works if you like the music. Even yeah. then, I'm not entirely convinced that it works. <laughs> like, okay. like I wasn't like because obviously I'm I'm an easy mark for something like yeah, that. Like, yeah. That's entirely in my wheelhouse. Like that is exactly 
you know, the kind of stuff that I love, and especially following on from uh, where you're meant to be last mm-hmm. year, when, which, you know, totally, like, I don't want to say redefined, but really, like, showed what you could do with a documentary like that, where you're sort of playing about yeah. with, like, notions of time and age and how music feeds into that and, you know, passing down music from one generation to the other and the emotional impact it can have. And, I don't know, just compared to something like that, Lost in France really kind of came up short for me, mm-hmm. unfortunately, yeah. which yeah. It, it just felt like... It feels like there is a really good film to be made out of that, but I don't know if it was just the approach they took with this one or what it was, but it felt very much like it was going down the... Like it was already trying to encase in amber this scene where most of the participants are still making like vital music, yeah. you know? They, I, mean, like, I suppose that's true. Pretty much all of them have been nominated for Say Awards in the past five years. You know, it's not like you're not talking about like people whose best work is 40 years behind them. You I know? thought that's um, why it was interesting was you saw the beginnings of these musicians who are still making yeah. a lot of, you know... But I thought, I thought the tone that it struck was very much like these kind of quite, like, hagiographic, you know, fawning rock docs about, you know, like Zeppelin or the Beatles or, you know, the Stones or something like that. It's like, oh, well, this was, you had to be there. If you weren't there, you won't know. All kind of stuff. And again, talking about them as if they were all, you know, massive like 40, 50 years ago and it's like well no like you know it's been especially with someone like Alex Capranos it's like it's been maybe like what 13 years since that Franz Ferdinand album came out it's not like it's the recent past <laughs> you know it's, yeah. not, it's still stuff maybe it's a really, sign of shrinking you know history yeah. you know things that actually weren't that long ago now look, I look back upon um, as it, like nostalgically yeah absolutely I think unearned nostalgia was, oh not unearned necessarily because I'm sure for the people who were there they do look back on it very fondly and but as I say because everybody is still very active in the kind of Scottish music scene mm-hmm. it, it felt a bit premature to be kind of um, like yeah making it making it like a monument to yeah, the past yeah, yeah. already you know? I'm, I'm entirely pissed with that I've got to say I've, I've just remembered I went to see it at ABC was that part of the film festival? Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that, I did go and see that and exactly what Chris said unfortunately I mean I enjoyed moments of it and mm-hmm. I thought moments of it were great and it was great to see a lot of those people together on the big screen and and to, to go back to those days that kind of, as you say, led to something special mm-hmm. and kind of preempted what was to be. Um, but I just felt for me it was very inward looking as opposed to outward looking when there's a lot there still to celebrate. And as Chris said, the tone of the film itself could have led to, well, this was a time where it was easier to make records and release them and have people buy them. And it's not such the case just now, but we are finding other ways to to repackage old stuff or to mm-hmm. create new music and collaborate in certain ways um, whether it is Aaron Hubbard with his new stuff with a lot of his um, friends working on albums mm-hmm. and Alex Capranos working with Sparks for a lot yeah. of people now and all of these different things and instead it kind of seemed to focus on on the Stuart Henderson chemical underground kind of kind of thing that's sort of you know there's a kind of shot of Stuart sitting in the sitting in the chemical underground office all the boxes everywhere and it's as if to kind of say well this is the kind of dying era and it's like mm. but it's not because a lot of those people are still involved in things yeah. today that, that are quite inspiring yeah. and are actually you know so you made some of their best music ever in the last few years yeah I just felt like it was kind of sort of it was a little bit self-congratulatory although it was deserved but mm. then it was sort of kind of self-deprecating when I didn't think it needed to be so it was, a kind of, it was quite strange, totally. Um, I think I probably enjoyed seeing it on the big screen because it was something that normally you would watch on 
on a much smaller of a screen and to hear the, the music come across well I guess it probably was a, a hit of nostalgia as well with it yeah I would agree with that I, I did enjoy watching it on the ABC though that was a good experience um, well I'm going to mention a couple of films I saw at the film festival one was Ellie Kendrick's The Leveling which um, is uh, set down Oh, I think kind of Somerset way, so I'm not entirely sure, but down in the south of England and is around at the time where there was lots of floods and obviously wiped out a lot of the farms were there um, and it, it was about a young woman coming back. The brother has uh, apparently committed suicide and it's her kind of reconciling or trying to reconcile with her dad and, and solve a whole lot of things. But what was, you know, you said about Daphne being beautifully shot, the levelling is Stunning, absolutely stunning, um, with all the wildlife and the, the countryside and everything's just fit to burst because there's all this water everywhere and, um, uh, you know, life, natural life is finding a way where actually the people on the land are really struggling to do anything with it. And um, it's a beautiful film and I've just realised that I called it Ellie Kendrick's The Leveling where actually she was the actress that was in it, who's Ellie Kendrick's also in Game of Thrones for fans of that. But um, it was Hope Dixon Leeches, and I think it was our um, debut feature film. Anyway, one another one to check out. Um, I also want to mention a documentary by David Graham Scott called The End of the Game, which um, was about this old man who lives up in the north of Scotland who had been in the army and, and various things during his life. He lives in a caravan now, although I think he's trying to do a house up real eccentric um, Colonel Major, looks a bit like the guy from Jumanji, the first Jumanji film that comes out the board with the hard hat and the blunderbuss and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of apt because he's a big game hunter and he goes for the kind of last big game and David um, follows him there. David's a vegetarian, in fact he's vegan. And this unlikely friendship, is it a friendship? I don't know if you'd say that, but this partnership builds up as he follows him and um, it's a disturbing film in many, many ways because he doesn't shy away from showing what's going to happen here. Um, and a lot of people have said to him, why have you made this film? You're kind of allowing... I mean, he didn't pay for him to go and do the hunt. He was going to do it anyway. I think he was hopefully trying to say, here's the reality of these things. The bad, which is kind of obvious, but also the good... What was really interesting, uh, this man, almost from a colonial past, who just really didn't fit in the modern world, um, is caught a couple of times saying things on camera that you just put your head in your hands and, oh, God, really? He's an old, old man as well. Uh, it's it's a really interesting documentary. I think you can get it, watch it online, um, maybe even on Vimeo, but... Um, yeah, The End of the Game uh, by David Graham Scott. And final one I just want to mention is a film I saw about, I, th I think it's on, um, a, sometimes on BBC Alba. It's about Benny Lynch, the boxer Benny Lynch, um, who was arguably Scotland's greatest ever sportsman. Um, died very young, uh, but when he was at his peak, he uh, was just um, world famous and incredible. Um, guy, and if you're into your sport at all, I just think a really good documentary. Um, Benny is all about Benny Lynch. So that was my kind of a festival, and really that's been my year in film. I haven't seen a lot, and I've seen a couple of things that we might talk about. But let's have a chat about what films you've seen this year. Wes, start off with yourself. Um, 
I've made, I have made a list of the top five, um, but I realised when I was kind of putting putting it together that there's a few other films that aren't really in there that that are just worth talking about. But I think we have to talk. We have to start any film twenty seventeen chat with talking about Moonlight. To be honest, right. Um, I mean, for me, it was just. I think. I think I said something like, um, every time I go and see a film, I just like just get so anxious to put a tweet out about it and to like send it out there to Twitter where nobody cares about it and like I said something about it was like visually poetic and like kind of overwhelming in, in the silence of the film and I mean it doesn't really mean much in that kind of 140 character tweet but it, it really is just full of all these superlatives that you can throw at it I mean it's hard hitting it's tender it's kind of tragic but there's so much empathy and kind of pathos that runs throughout the film um, I mean it's not even it's beautifully constructed, which we can say about I think a lot of films we'll talk about this year. Um, but it's not just the aesthetics of it. I mean, the sort of everything from the kind of subtlety and the acting to the kind of realism and the the very very limited dialogue that's kind of throughout the film to all these kind of intertwined narratives that sort of build up the characters and kind of follow the plot a little bit. Um, and it kind of really is just kind of a deconstruction of sort of masculinity and and sort of intimacy really. Mm-hmm. And, and what it means to be a, a black American kind of growing up and, and, and living with, with being homosexual mm-hmm. um, and kind of a lot of other things it's quite socio economic in, in places which again has been quite a big theme of, of films this year um, and it's just it's just completely human to its core and I, I just don't think we can really understate how powerful an impact the success that that film has had is going to have on film going forward yeah. and it just shows you what happens when you, you give a platform to to kind of minority groups to be able to tell their own stories and their stories that should completely and utterly be told. I mean, it's a film that could, because of the subject matter it deals with being kind of dry and worthy, for what of a better term, but actually it was incredibly artistic and beautiful in, in its content and the way the story was told as well. Chris, did you...? Yeah, I loved Moonlight. I absolutely loved it. I think it's one that it kind of... It creeps up on you. I don't think there's any one single moment within the film that while you're watching it that you might stop and think, oh, this is this is breathtaking or whatever, but then by the end of it you're kind of just left there kind of sprawling, just kind of in a daze or whatever, you know. I mean, there's you can certainly point to moments here and there. I know that if I say the chair moment, like, that is massively satisfying. And then, like, towards the... Um, like, towards the end in the kind of third act where it goes a bit one car why. um and you have the moment in the car where they have the chopped and screwed version of Classic Man playing. Um, so there, there are moments here and there, but I think like just the kind of the cumulative impact of it, it outweighs the kind of individual you know, scenes and individual moments. Um, and just the fact that, I, like, I still can't believe they won the Oscar. You know, yeah. it's the most, like, quiet, unassuming, you know, like, the fact that it was nominated at all in the first place was felt like enough, you know, mm-hmm. and just to have it... And then, obviously, it runs the risk of being overshadowed by the whole kind of, you know, just absolute shitstorm in the Oscars when Warren B read out the wrong name, you know, read out La La Land instead. And it's almost there's a worry that it might be remembered for that as, like, a piece of trivia more than, you know, the actual, like, substance of the film. But it's just it doesn't deserve that. It deserves so much more than that. It's just such an absolutely gorgeous film and you don't don't want to say like important film you know quotation marks and stuff but it really feels like I think, like, right, I think the fact mark. that it won it is incredible because you can imagine as often with these kind of short lists or any kind of list you think well let's put 
that's a box tick we've got that in the shortlist but it's never going to win but actually the fact that it did was yeah I mean it's a, it's a small film you know what I mean it's, it has massive ambitions in the sense it's trying to like tell a life story condensed into you know these three kind of separate moments in time and how they like kind of inter- intersect and combine to make a person um, but it just it feels like a la- it's a landmark in like in like LGBT cinema it's kind of a landmark in, in black cinema and it feels like mm-hmm. I mean it, it just feels incredible that that's the film that <laughs> that won this year the most I mean for all you can talk about like the Oscars don't matter and stuff and they're not any kind of worthwhile barometer of taste when something like this happens it's, it's still very easy to be awed by that you know and yeah. think well this is like the biggest platform for movies that you know the and worldwide public gets you and know? that's the way that they do matter is that yeah. people that would never have seen that film because it won an Oscar will um, you know actually go out and I've, I've seen it yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so what other ones do you... Um, in your five? Well, uh, a film that stayed with me a lot recently in the past few weeks has to be The Florida Project. Um, now, The Florida Project, I kind of went in not knowing a lot about it other than Willem Dafoe was in it and it was uh, Sean Baker. Yeah, Sean Baker, who I only ever knew from Tangerine from last yes, year. Yes, absolutely. Which was obviously excellent for anyone that doesn't know. Tangerine was shot entirely on an iPhone, well, a, suit, a very souped-up iPhone, um, for, I think, way, way less than even $500,000 or something yeah. like that. Um, and it was about um, transgender sex workers, and it, it was it was funny, it was uplifting, it was it was human, it was everything I want in a film, and it completely, completely uh, taken me by surprise last year, and I absolutely loved it. So I was really excited to see this, when I'm not knowing much about it, other than there was some reference to Disney there in the Florida Project yeah, and yeah. Walt Disney's sort of initial idea for the original Walt Disney Walt Disneyland and, and the contrast of that throughout the film is just absolutely remarkable. I mean, I, I honestly can't stop thinking about it since I've seen it. Yeah. It's a film that it's, um, focuses on young girl Mooney growing up in, in what is now referenced as the Florida Project and uh, kind of the title of the film. And it's just all of these sort of um, motels kind of motel complexes if you like on the outskirts of Walt, Walt Disney World um, where families actually live um, day to day week by week sort of and have to leave again at the end of at the end of that term and we kind of join that motel and we stay there because they're not actually allowed to legally live there for longer than the 28 day period or 30 day period um, and it's something I, I wasn't really aware about no. and then just watching those sort of 35 mil tracking shots of this kid's adventure and seeing everything from a kid's kid's eye view um, it's just a film that was never ever judgmental at mm-hmm. any point I mean it's a film that I know a lot of people there's a lot of walkouts during and I've heard a lot of people really really found it difficult to get bored with it because the, the parenting in it isn't up to isn't up to a certain standard that they like it to be and, and they feel like that's kind of hard to empathise with the lead character and um, but I mean that final act absolutely broke me I've, that's probably the most I've cried in a cinema in a long time it completely sideswept me um, and anybody that's seen the film will know what I'm talking about but just watching the change and the shift and dynamic of that character was yeah. was stunning to me and I think just the way that they cast films like that or Sean Baker does it anyways now become very well known for casting unknowns in these films mm-hmm. and I think was it Brooklyn Prince Junior or something that plays Mooney the the girl um, she was kind of a breakthrough breakthrough um, actor and the 
the woman that played her mum, Haley, I think was cast, she was found on Instagram and she was cast yeah. that way. So just to get that sort of performance out of these people that you genuinely believe are from this area and genuinely believe in, in their kind of struggle, um, to get to direct that kind of performance out of people who have just never done this type of thing before alongside a kind of veteran actor like Willem Dafoe is just astonishing. And um, the ending of the film... I immediately wasn't entirely satisfied with mm-hmm. but as the days went on the more it, the more it sat with me the more I thought about it the more it sort of made sense and um, there was other ways I felt the film could have ended but just as a whole it was just it, it's just been a long time since apart from Moonlight I've seen a, a director give remove so much judgement from a film mm-hmm. on kind of characters in that sort of a situation and just let the viewer make up their own mind and not be scared to do that which is, as I said, why there's been a lot of walkouts of this film. It's been quite divisive, but quite challenging to people. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen it. I have to say, have you? It's very good. Yeah, it's very good. I think it, it deals with poverty in a way that you don't often see in American cinema. It kind of maybe has more of a vibe of like kind of Italian neorealism. You know, you're talking like kind of post-war, like Rossellini kind of stuff. But it really deals with it in a way that there's no glamorization, but there's also no kind of like. Oh, noble poverty you know it's like oh look at these people suffering aren't they better than the rest of us but it's just like they're people you know mm-hmm. and that's it and they're in a situation they're dealing with it um, but at the same time it does it in a way because it's shot from a kid's point of view everything's vivid and colourful and you know just bigger than life um, and it walks a very fine line and kind of that kind of stylization with the kind of purple walls and the motel and everything like this and everything's really super colourful and uh, obviously very kind of artificial in the shadow of, of Disney Um whilst being this brutally honest kind of, you know, very kind of, this is this is what it's like to be poor in modern day America and have to live with the kind of the crushing expectation of like, you know, actually doing you know, living up to the, yeah, living up to the kind of the American dream yeah. for want of a better way of putting that. Um, in terms of themes it sounds kind of like Mike Lee. A little bit, yeah. Um, I would say maybe even like Mike Lee it, do, it doesn't really go for the kind of the comedy of discomfort as much as Mike Lee does I'd say it's, it's maybe more raucous than Mike Lee is right. it's maybe a little bit more kind of like brash when, in its comedy than Mike Lee is Mike Lee tends to go for that kind of comedy of discomfort and very kind of you know like uh, social mobility and upward you know upward striving and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Ken, uh, Ken Watch has been bandied about yeah. quite a lot yeah. you know, um, and that kind of but it's a very more stylistic yeah, <laughs> yeah sure yeah. well I think um, from the films that we've spoken about already Style this year and was it was almost over. No, I mean not over substance because what you're saying these films have incredible substance and the style just helps the story get told. Um, Chris, what about you this year? Give us a couple of films um, that you would really recommend. Well, my uh, favorite film of the year was actually the first one I saw in cinema this year. I saw it on the second of January, which is uh, Silence, uh, Martin Scorsese's Silence, oh, which yeah. is. Um, not only my favourite film of the year, I think it's one of the greatest films made this century so far. It's absolutely overwhelming. I think it's maybe it's one of Scorsese's best as well. Um, and it's one that it always massively frustrates me when Scorsese gets pigeonholed as like a gangster filmmaker, you know, as like Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, all that, because there's so much more 
to last to film photography in that. Well, yeah, Last Temptation, and it's very much like it almost kind of forms a thematic trilogy with like Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun. If you like, it's kind of like his religious trilogy. Although obviously, like you know, Catholic guilt creeps in pretty much everything he's done, like right back to like Mean Streets, you know, and well, who's that knocking at my door? Even like further back from that. But um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely like monumental. Is um, so it was a long time ago, and I didn't see it. So tell us a little bit about Simon. so. Uh, set is based on um, a Japanese novel. It's been made uh, as a film in Japan for in the seventies, I think, and um, it's about uh, Catholic missionaries in Japan in the I think sixteenth century, who uh, one of their number uh, they've lost contact with. Uh, who's played by Liam Neeson and they don't know if he's been killed if they don't know if he's been martyred uh, they don't know if he's kind of gone native for want of a better way of putting it you know, or, and so they send uh, a couple of other missionaries to kind of go and try and find them uh, played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver um, and it just kind of follows them on their journey to find out where where he is and what happened and um going into these kind of Catholic pockets of Japan with um, the kind of persecution that that entails because it's a minority religion at the mm-hmm. time it's not looked upon too kindly by uh, the ruling classes and uh, yeah it's by Scorsese's time he's talking about like style and everything like that it's just one of the least flashy films that Scorsese's ever made I think it draws on a much deeper well of like um, oh, like one of Scorsese's old collaborators Paul Schrader um, wrote a book called uh, about transcendental cinema and he mm-hmm. talked about like uh, Otsu and Robert Bresson and uh, Dreher that's like his three examples of like the transcendent cinema and it's a film that kind of draws on that I think a lot of the time you know that kind of deeply spiritual filmmaking you know and quite austere especially by Scorsese's standards there's none of the kind of the quick cuts or the kind of the the really flashy you know like Leila doesn't play over there's the no, top yeah, yeah there's no like there's no uh, attention drawing uh, needle drops or anything like that but um, again like Moonlight is just that kind of cumulative power of it where it just kind of slowly overwhelms you until you get to the final moments and uh, yeah it's, it's, it's jaw dropping it's just again maybe I don't know if it would have the same impact watching it at home so if people haven't seen it already I don't want to build it up too much in case you know, I'm afraid you've done that I know but, uh, <laughs> yeah but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely it's overwhelming as a piece of cinema, and it's it's astonishing to me that Scorsese managed to pivot from the Wolf of Wall Street to this like one after the other, and well in his seventies at this point. Um, yeah, I think it's quite a leap. Yeah, and to still be making, I think like they're two of the best films of his career, and to still have that in him uh, this far, and it's just it's, it's staggering. So. So that was, that was the film of the year. Film for of the year for me, yes. Yeah, so um, what was um, following up? Uh, Moonlight actually was my number two I think after that I, again like I don't want to feel like this. <laughs> the rest of this year has been really substandard or anything but all my favourite films of the year were like kind of holdovers from last year's Oscar season so Manchester by the Sea as well mm-hmm. Kenneth against Manchester by the Sea uh, the first film he's actually um, shot in a decade because uh, Margaret's previous film he shot in 2006 and it was held over for years um, mm-hmm. in kind of legal troubles uh, it finally uh, screened in I think 2011 Um but you mentioned, you've mentioned yeah 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 I talked about it I think probably the first year we did one of these podcasts yeah. uh, I talked about Margaret um, but yeah so uh, it's Casey Affleck plays um, a divorcee who uh, kind of is drawn back to, to his hometown for family reasons I don't want to give too much away um, but uh, as the plot goes on you find out like, it's one of these things where the structure is very much about revealing more details as it goes on you know so 
he goes back uh, to deal with some issues from his past some that have now kind of crept into his present and um, yeah without wanting to give too much away it's a uh, thing things get pretty pretty emotional <laughs> uh, from, I know like you were in it as well right? yeah right. definitely yeah. exactly the same I feel like kind of a lot of it has been overlooked a lot in his career for various reasons as you were just discussing and um, a lot of people kind of written him off before he even got started if you like and, and that just goes to prove how, how great he can be and Casey Affleck was obviously the perfect choice for it in terms of his acting ability and yeah it was it was fantastic it's another film that stuck with me right from the beginning of the year all the way throughout and yeah it was like I think it was number three in my, in my list so yeah um Number three in your list? That, that was number three on mine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, in terms of like, actually, oh, that was another one I saw at the festival, actually. I'm just going through my number four on the list. Um, it was, uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, if you'd said to me like 10 years ago that not only would we be getting regular Terrence Malick films, we'd be getting them so regularly that we get two in a year. Yeah. Um, it, that it is odd, a, definitely. Blowing my mind. But um, yeah, um, so there were a couple of years your song, song was very good. They got a very limited release considering it had like, you know, Rooney Mara, Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender. Could you know, have been a bit kicking, if I remember yeah, correctly. It's great. Like, I loved Song to Song, but I really loved uh, Voyage of Time, which screened at the festival this year, which um, was made kind of with not exclusively with offcuts from the Tree of Life but it certainly had its genesis in the kind of the creation of the universe sequence from the Tree of Life um, and it's just kind of ostensibly a documentary but I mean I wouldn't go in it looking for any kind of educational value it's very much um, kind of a personal take on the kind of development of life on earth within that kind of very again kind of spiritual some would say woolly <laughs> philosophical style that Mali's kind of developed with voiceover um, the the whole kind of mother father why do you wrestle inside me kind of thing for always you wrestle inside me thing from the from the tree of life, um so it's that kind of style so you either you're on board with it or you're absolutely very much not on board with it but uh, yeah I loved it again just um, there's a sequence in it that is kind of like if Malik had done the the Donna Man sequence from the two thousand from two thousand one yeah. space Odyssey and is I think it's one of the best things he's he's ever put on screen so it's uh, yeah definitely it's worth checking out just yeah. for that to yeah. See. Absolutely, um, but in terms, of, I was thinking about this. Like all of my, my top four were all films that were actually made last year and just got released in the UK this year. Like they would feel feel as we've been talking about them for ages. So in terms of something that actually did come out this year, the aforementioned John Wick two. Yeah, um, was uh, yeah. Like I loved the first one. I think I'm sure I talked about it on here a couple of years ago when it came out. Um, just a like just incredible piece of action filmmaking and the second one again I don't want to say wouldn't say divisive but I think it was maybe a little more cool you received in the first one uh, the, it does uh, a bit of what's coming you know what a lot of people now refer to as world building where it kind of like deepens you know and builds this kind of mythology around it whereas the first one was quite streamlined and quite you know very clean just straight ahead this is he's got an objective he's going to kill a lot of people to achieve it you know that's it there's going to be a few gunfights everybody's going to go home happy um, this one was a lot more kind of um, almost like Jacobean you know it's very kind of like a revengers tragedy kind of thing you know okay. it goes in all these kind of aspects of like classical mythology and stuff and gets very kind of baroque with it um, but so I think that threw me the, I, I saw it twice in cinemas I think the first time I saw it it kind of threw me a little bit and I wasn't sure how I felt but I liked it a lot more the second time around once you go in knowing that it's not going to be exactly along the same lines as the first one and just doing something a little different with it there is um, a set piece an action set piece towards the end in a hall of mirrors that is one of the most staggering things I've seen in the cinema this year um, 
so it's still if you're into that kind of thing it is very heartily recommended <laughs> and do you think this is um, Keanu has found his perfect role in oh absolutely like it's, it's, it's made for him you know he doesn't really say much he gets to look cool, <laughs> he, <looks so> cool. <laughs> he gets to move gracefully on screen yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great he's great in it very game supporting cast Ian McShane Lawrence Fishburne uh, Common is in it um, yeah, he's built up quite a career yeah absolutely yeah um, it's, it's very good it's very good Number four and five of the year for you. Yeah, uh, well, actually, when you look at the actual list and see, oh, there you go. So number four is The Handmaiden for me. Actually, um, it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever been more willing to sit through a sort of was it three hours or something yeah. like that sort of deceitful Korean melodrama as I have as I have this one. But I mean, I had my reservations at the start, like mm-hmm. going into it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Park Chan Wook, obviously. Um, old boy and. This is probably most most famous yeah. film, um, kind of Lady Vengeance, that that kind of thing. Um, I mean, he's directing what is considered to be one of the most groundbreaking LGBT novels um, of recent years. I think about sort of sexual liberation of women, and it was originally set in Victorian England, and it's now been kind of moved to um, kind of Japanese controlled colonial era um, Korea. In the nineteen thirties, I think. Yeah, early twentieth century. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I'd obviously had concerns about that because it's very open to the male gaze. There's going to be a lot yeah. of kind of women's kind of uh, kind of female sexual scenes in it that is directed by someone who's not entirely known for their kind of emotional tenderness at times. No, um, not from his previous films. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is sort of in the kind of undercurrents and the, the kind of writing of the characters, but not in terms of the kind of visual elements of these films um, but I mean for me like despite a lot of the lingering sex scenes and stuff it didn't really seem that gratuitous um, he seemed sort of kind of really aware of the kind of kind of dichotomy at play of rather than kind of try and shy away from it he just kind of gave it gave, gave it a little bit of freedom and a kind of sense of freedom that it really needed um, and for me that kind of sort of transcended it but I mean I'm not really the best person to be commenting on the Bill Gates, so I'm sure that's for other people to comment on, and there has been a lot of pieces both ways written about yeah. it. But that aside, um, I thought the film itself was was incredible, and it had me hooked the entire way through. Throughout, it wasn't a story I was familiar with, and I mean, it was like gorgeously gothic as well, um, and it's got the kind of kind of mixes a kind of unnerving thriller aspect with a sort of kind of I don't know the sort of duplicity of like a kind of old fashioned kind of comedy crime caper. Um, and it was done extremely well. I thought I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think you've seen it as well. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah, I did. I actually saw it uh, on Easter Monday of all days with, um, <laughs> with a couple of pals, one of whom uh, was a big Park Chan Wook fan, didn't have any idea what he was getting into with this. The other one had never heard of Park Chan Wook and also didn't know what he was getting into, so I was just sitting between them, like, you know, well, I knew exactly what I was getting into with this. <laughs> <laughs> I think the others they were kind of taken aback a little bit um, and I think any time they hear the um, like clinking metal they'll oh, have yeah. like a Pavlovian response to it at this point but um, but yeah I know I think everybody kind of thoroughly enjoyed it um, but uh, yeah it's one of those ones that just kind of keeps building as it goes and it's got a really like strong sense of humour as well because it has the potential it. to be like you know you hear Park Chan Wook's doing like a, a romantic period piece here. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's very good. It's, it's still very much a Park Chan Wook film. I think it's yeah. like 
I mean, people throw around words like restrained and mature, but by his standards, like, there's still... I mean, by his standards, yes, but by anyone else's standards, there's still a lot of, like, really... Are there any weird. octopuses in there? I'm literally just about to say that. There's even an octopus in there. Yeah. <laughs> in the final act. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite to the same extent. Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen it appear on screen, and I was like, yeah. no. There's a canopy going here. Yeah, it's very good. Um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I mean... In terms of other films, I suppose just to touch on a couple quite, quite quickly that kind of were quite surprising to me, and um, where probably you kind of make a kind of nice kind of double bill would be um, if you're into sort of kind of bleak period drama stuff, which I never really realised I was into until <laughs> this year. Um, I really enjoyed France, um, which was a film by kind of Francois Ozon, which was really really good. Um, the lead actress Paula Beer, she was absolutely incredible in it. Um, Francois Francois Ozon done. Um, Eight women with the yeah. well her obviously, which was which was excellent, and I think he did a film with Charlotte Rampling. It was a bit OTT in places. I can't remember. Uh, he's done a couple with her. He did uh, Under the Sand and he did Swimming Pool. Swimming Pool was yeah. that, that was the one, yeah. Um, but it was a weird film that we uh, kind of we just watched and I just never wanted to finish. Mm. It was um, it's like a a kind of sl- slight imagining of an old kind of Ernst uh, Lubitsch story which I'd never heard of, and a big fan of him, like of the kind of old stuff. Uh, the shop around the corner, obviously, kind of plays in the house at Christmas and it's, it's excellent as was in Trouble in Paradise but uh, it was a story I hadn't really heard of and I think got a bit of a kind of pang um, in terms of his usual body of stuff but um, this was kind of reimagined and it was just really quiet, simple, slow moving um, but the performances were absolutely captivating from start to finish and um, just yeah it was kind of something I kind of keep going back to and it's just kind of a bit of good old fashioned filmmaking Actually, that's a horrible phase. I'm not a Brexiteer. Yeah, it was. It could be old fashioned, but still okay. Just go back to the roots of filmmaking. <laughs> um, but it was really good. And the other one would have been kind of Lady Macbeth. Again, wasn't really expecting much from that. And um, it was just completely unashamedly empowering and emphatic. And um, the way it kind of slowly unraveled the kind of lead performance and um, the lack of score was like extremely sinister at times, especially. The kind of scene, um, actually, I won't even reveal what scene it is, but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it was really, really, really chilling to watch and oddly profound mm-hmm. in, um, in its sort of immorality, if you like. Uh, yeah, it was great. Um, the Killing of a Sacred Deer, did you see that? I didn't see it actually, no, I haven't seen it. Have you seen that? Did you watch that? No, I haven't seen Killing of a Sacred Deer, no. Kind of Yorgos Lanthimos film. Was Is about, that just recent? Yeah, it was kind of last month, I think it was. Um, I mean, it's just very, very August Lanthimos. Um, beautiful shots of hospital corridors. And mm-hmm. the main thing for me that kind of held my interest in that was the sort of Greek tragedy element. Yeah. I went to see Oresteia, this restless house at the Citizens earlier right. this year, which was on for, I think, I think the actual duration was about half a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was outstanding, it was really good, and Greek tragedy is not something I'm massively uh, familiar with, but I really, really enjoyed that. It's um, kind of based on the kind of, um, I've written it down here because I was going to forget the name of it, um, the kind of Greek myth of Iphigenia, where um, our father, Agamemnon, sacrificed her to the goddess, and it's kind of turned it into um, this modern day take and very very uneasy very unsettling completely enhanced by the gentleman behind me who passed out at the most <laughs> most out. nerving wow. and important scene in the entire film in the final act 
um, they completely distracted me from it so as I turned around to see what was going on and make sure he was okay he just came to and just as I turned back around on the screen it was all everything had all changed um, so that's going to stick with me for a while but I really enjoyed that as well yeah I was very much here for the years other Colin Farrell and Cole Kidman joint which was uh, Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled yes, uh, yeah. remake of the Don Siegel film from the early 70s with Clint Eastwood which uh, set during the Civil War is set in and, which I think is a terrific film the, the, yeah, the, the original case, one yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, set in the civil, uh, during the American Civil War in the South, um, an all-girls school, uh, one of the girls stumbles across a Union soldier in the woods, played by Colin Farrell, uh, who's injured, takes him in, uh, and uh, shit goes down <laughs> yeah. from, from that point on, but again, done with uh, much more of a kind of sly sense of humour than you might expect from from a period piece uh, like that, and uh, outstanding cast, Kidman, Kirsten Dunst, Elle Fanning. Farrell um, Carol Farrell has really you know he's he's walked into a hell of an actor he's one of these guys who I think he's like a character actor cursed with a leading man's looks you know (laughs) if you can call that a curse but he's uh, he's great in kind of weirdo supporting roles and kind of more low-key stuff you know he's, he's not necessarily made for the kind of big Hollywood action hero that I think they originally tried to get him to be you know you look at the early 2000s he was in like SWAT and he was Bullseye and Daredevil I've never forgiven him since yeah. doing Bullseye and Daredevil and it takes a kind of, lot to get yeah. me back to see I confess that I own SWAT on DVD so all this kind of stuff that he wasn't necessarily a great fit for with size I mean I think he's really good in Michael Mann's Miami Vice um, mm-hmm. but I think certainly over the last like Five ten years, he's really found his niche in kind of more offbeat stuff in, in supporting roles, or as I say, in the lead in kind of lower budget feralism, uh, let's freak flag fly. <laughs> I think the the big area also would be an excellent companion piece to Lady Macbeth. Those would be great to watch back to back. It's interesting the films that we've been talking about. As I say, there does seems to be the idea of the filmmakers, you know, almost unmistakable vision as important. I'm even thinking about things like um, a. A New Zealand director that's done Thor. Taika Waititi. Uh, that's, that, exactly. You know, which is, you can, it's his film. You can see that despite it being part of the Marvel Universe, he's made it look the incredible way. And, I mean, all of these films are auteur films almost, even though a lot of them are big budget are really successful movies, from Sofia Coppola to, you know, Scorsese and all yeah. of these things. Speaking of which, one that like I kind of wanted to flag up just because, not just of it being a very, very good film in and of itself, and one that was in my top ten, but one because it potentially points the way towards how things might be going from this point on in terms of exhibition is Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories which is a Netflix original so if you wanted to see the latest film from the director of Francis Ha, uh, Mistress America The Squid and the Whale uh, yeah, yeah, to have a Netflix account, you can just go to the cinema and see, I think it got a very limited release in America but it got a day and date release over here so we watched it like the weekend that all the first reviews started coming out in America, watched it on a Sunday night on Netflix um, it's great, it's like it's, it's not the budget hasn't been cut. It's not like a made-for-TV or a directed video movie or anything like that. It's a, it's a Noah Baumbach film that you'd happily go and see in the cinema. Adam Sandler, Dustin Hoffman, um, Ben Stiller, mm-hmm. you know, Emma Thompson, like terrific, terrific yeah, cast, brilliantly written, uh, beautifully observed, just one of Baumbach's best. Like you know, I happily put it in top three Noah Baumbach films, and yeah, but it's not going to be out in the cinema here no. apart from. It's that's a Netflix it. film, you know, and I think that's the way that, like, I think a lot of people are going to those kind of studios to get funding, you know, like, uh, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson last year was funded by Amazon, or yeah, this right. distribution was funded by Amazon, Spike Lee is working yeah. with Amazon now, and Netflix, like, he's now doing, she's got to have it as a TV show. So Woody I think, Allen yeah, did his first TV yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Although maybe, you know, like if we want to, we want to bring up Woody Allen at this, at this particular cultural juncture. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting that that seems to be the the way that a lot of filmmakers are now pursuing. You know, that that's a way that a lot of filmmakers are now going to to have some kind of creative control over it. You know, because they don't have the pressures of necessarily the, the opening weekend being the be-all and end-all yeah but do you think we're going to lose something then if that's the case I mean I think so I, I'm still very much a big advocate of actually seeing stuff in the cinema and I mean uh, like uh, even to the extent that I feel like a lot has been lost just in the shift to digital you know because it almost feels like oh I mean a part of me feels like we're not losing that much uh, between seeing like a, a film digitally projected in the cinema and just seeing it at home on a decent setup you know like because it's essentially the same file that's the difference um, if it was still 35 mil in the cinema or 70 mil or any other kind of actual physical film that was being projected then yeah you're really going to notice a difference but um, I don't know it's a, it's a tricky one because part of me agrees with like Quentin Tarantino's proclamation from a few years ago that digital projections just cinema uh, just uh, TV in public yeah you know because it is, it is it's the same file it's the exact same image quality that you're going to get from like a Blu-ray or a Netflix stream or you know a TV broadcast or something it's just the same file that's being used for all of them because it's digital now and because it's transmuted into that and there's still this kind of intangible well not intangible very tangible quality that you get from, from a decent print you know mm -hmm. the, like just recently a couple of weekends ago the GFT showed Lawrence of Arabia from 70 mil like a big you know large yeah. format print and it was you know it was incredible experience you know and the atmosphere was great everything was a sold out screen and it was buzzing you know it was really just and that's the kind of thing that you worry that will be lost if there's a complete shift to to Netflix and Amazon and you know these but it's interesting because on one hand we're saying that there's these amazing looking films being made um, but there might be less chance to see them on, on the big screen as a result yeah. well again like I think as people's home setups get better then there's maybe less of a you know, there's maybe less being lost. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I don't want to see cinema <laughs> dying out as, as, a, as a public pursuit. You know, I'd still much rather be able to go and see something on the big screen with, like, a fantastic setup and everything like that. But even look at, like, kind of just standards presentation slipping and multiplexes and stuff like that as well. you got to ask, like, are a lot of people going to see it to its best advantage in the cinema or will they be better just seeing it at home? You know, especially... You set up of, at home. Yeah, especially in terms of distribution. I mean, if you can stay home and uh, like say you live like we're lucky because we live in Glasgow and like you know we've got the GFT we've got like a massive cinema world and stuff and we get most things like day and day with their release in the rest of the country but if you're living in like a small town you know say you're living in like Dunoon or you know well, they've got an excellent film festival yeah who do have an excellent film festival but they have a two screen cinema or St yeah. Andrews you know with two yeah. screen cinema maybe you have to wait like three or four weeks to you know get the latest big releases or something you can either wait a month and go see the latest DC effort or you can watch a new Noah Baumbach film there and then yeah, on the same yeah, weekend yeah. as everybody else you know and it feels like so just like in larger cinema's choice becomes less because you've got 10 schemes of Star Wars or something yeah. like that and actually people uh, so the, the films that we've been talking about are less likely to yeah, perhaps they I might mean, go why, why bother if, I, if it's so difficult to get it on screens in the first place why bother at all yeah which again it would be a shame if that became it would be a shame if streaming became the only avenue for, you know, smaller filmmakers. If you have to be above a certain budget to be able to make it to cinema screens, then that would be, you know, that would be a loss. But at the same time, it does, again, just to play that was advocate, it does completely open it up for people at home who maybe don't have the same opportunities to see smaller films whose, like, local cinemas maybe wouldn't play 
you know, the kind yeah. of stuff we've been talking about wouldn't get, like the Florida Project or Moonlight if it hadn't won the Oscar or, you know, anything like this, mm-hmm. or it wouldn't get like a new Noah Baumbach film generally. And now they have access to all this stuff because it's right there on Netflix and Netflix is promoting it and, you know, funding it and making it available. Again, not in prison Netflix. Like, I don't even have my own Netflix account and I'm not here this to show This podcast is not sponsored by Netflix. Other streaming services are available and probably better. But uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting that that seems to be the way that a lot of kind of authors are, are going now. Well, I think that's an interesting place uh, to leave it. And we that was the film, the year in film that was, as I say. And uh, we'll be back um, with the best music from 2017. Well, after the short break, uh, see you then. Cheers. Mm-hmm.